Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast, where research has consistently shown that a good marriage can significantly improve a man's happiness and quality of life. But a bad marriage, that can make you utterly miserable and even ruin you financially. While many men chalk up successful marriage to the luck of the draw, my guest today argues that by looking for certain red flags in a relationship, as well as certain positive attributes, you can avoid getting involved in a draining marriage and instead marry someone who will make your life better. His name is Sean Smith. He's a clinical psychologist based in Denver and the author of the book, The Tactical Guide to Women, How Men Can Manage Risk risk in dating and marriage. Today on the show, Sean and I discuss the risk and rewards of love and the mistakes he's seen men make over and over again in his counseling practice when it comes to dating and marriage. Sean then shares the script most men follow to find a partner, why that script can backfire in them, and then provides a better alternative script men should use to help find a compatible mate. Sean then walks us through the character traits men should be looking for in a woman and the changes men should make themselves to ensure they have a fulfilling marriage. He then explains why happy wife, happy life is terrible marital advice and what to do if your marriage isn't doing well right now. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash red flags. Sean Smith, welcome back to the show. Brett, thanks for having me. So we had you on, man, it was about a year ago, I think, to talk about your book, How to Survive Aggressive People. You got a new book out, The Tactical Guide to Women how men can manage risk in dating and marriage. And this is based on your work as a clinical psychologist and doing family counseling and helping men and women with their relationship problems. So let's talk about that subtitle of the book, How Men Can Manage Risk in Dating and Marriage. What are the risks that men face in the dating and marriage game? Well, the risk with uh, bringing the wrong person to your life is is that you put basically whatever's most important to you at risk potentially. I had this teacher a long time ago who who said, he had this quaint little saying that he who walks through poopies gets poopies stuck to him. And it was just a warning to be careful who you run with and, and the people that you bring into your inner circle. You know, they they have the potential to really add to what's important to you or to really take away from it. Can I tell you a quick little story? Yeah. This book has a, a hundred different backstories. This is one that didn't make it into the book, but it, it's always 
been kind of emblematic to me of why I wrote it. This was a guy named Dave who was in his late 30s and he had been really smart about business. And he'd built this business for himself that was probably never going to make him rich, but it was always going to sustain him. Gotten to the point where it was running itself and was generating a decent little income. And late 30s, he decided that he had been neglecting the personal side of his life and he wanted he wanted to get married. He wanted to have a family, have kids and so forth. And so for the first time, he really started in earnest looking for a woman. And the first woman that he came across, they were instantly smitten with each other and very, very taken by each other physically. And they seemed to click right off the bat. And within about six months, he moved this woman into his house, which he owned because, you know, he'd, again, he'd been smart about his money and no, no payments there. And um, things were going okay for a few months, but she was struggling with her career. And so he decided to bring her into this company that he had built. So within about nine months, he had brought this woman into his house into his home that he lived in and into his company that he had built up. And you can probably tell where this is headed. It's not headed in a good direction. She, after about a year, started to show some different sides of her personality. And he started to notice that she was getting kind of abusive and and very um, confrontational and eventually even got physically abusive. And so about uh, three months after that, probably 15 months into the relationship, he decided he needed out. Well, she was not She was not down with that. She didn't want to go quietly. She didn't want to break up. And then she decided that she was going to get litigious about it. And so he eventually she put him in a legal spot where he either had to liquidate his company to get rid of her or liquidate his company so that he could fight her in court because she, had, she was making the case that this was now hers, his home and, and his business. And of course it wasn't, but didn't really matter. The point was that he had to invest all these resources in, in getting rid of her. And it decided he decided under counsel of his lawyers to just settle, which meant that he had to basically liquidate a huge piece of his company and start over. So this is a guy, you know, getting back to the original question, what do you put at risk? This was a guy who had always valued his freedom and his autonomy in the world. And by bringing this woman into his life so quickly, he put all of that at risk and he, he actually lost a huge chunk of it, not permanently because he could rebuild it, but he lost that thing that was so important to him. That's great. And they weren't even married, right? No, no. And you throw in on top of that, you throw in, uh, had he married and had kids and you throw in the family court system, which to this day is still pretty heavily biased against men. You know, women get 96 to 97% of alimony payments and six out of every seven or no, five out of every six custodial arrangements go to women with the children. And women get child support when they have primary custody 23% more often than men get child support. So you throw all that into the mix and- <clears throat> you know, it, it can get really ugly. Right. And that's not, not just the financial stuff, which is just can be terrible, but just like the emotional strain as well can I imagine just is no fun at all. Yeah. And it's harder on men. The, the emotional stuff, it's been well documented that divorce is more, it affects men more negatively than it does women. They tend toward more substance abuse, more social isolation, more mortality. And women generally have more of a social network. That's yeah, our fault, not theirs. You know, it's, it's men's fault that they, if they don't have a, a social support network, but women fare better emotionally and physically after divorce too. Interesting. But what's interesting, so there are, there's a huge amount of risk, right? And that's, that amount of risk you know, for a lot of men, that's like, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not even going to date women. I'm not even going to marry them. But that's not the case you're making in, in your book. You're also arguing, okay, marriage comes with a lot of risk. But if you do dating and marriage right, it can be one of the biggest boons to your life. Well, absolutely. And that's that's been pretty well documented too, that men who are in happy marriages, they live longer, they're healthier, they make more money, they have more sex. Life is just 
Life is better for men when you're in a good relationship, but it's a lot worse for men when you're in a bad one. All right. So the, the whole point of this book is to help men steer clear of those risks yeah. and then really develop a relationship that's strong, good, and healthy. Yeah. And, and you alluded to this community, this big, you didn't say MGTOW, but there's this men going their own way community out there. These guys who've decided that women are just not for them because this is too risky. And yeah, I, I get it and I sympathize with them. But yeah, you know, this book isn't for those guys probably. It's for guys like me who actually want women in our lives. I've been married for 18 years and it's, it's great. I love my wife and daughter. I just can't imagine life without them. So in your clinical practice, what are the biggest mistakes you see men make over and over and over again when choosing a woman to date or to even marry? Well, let's talk about the the sort of the psychological side first. The the biggest mistake men make psychologically is just not knowing their history, knowing where they come from. And what I mean by that is really um, understanding what they learned from their parents, their role models about relationships. Because men are not we're we're not as attuned to that as when I think we're getting better, but we don't pay as much attention to our past and what drives us as women do. And so I see so many guys who come in and they just repeat the old mistakes that their parents make, or they're doing the same thing over and over in their relationships and wondering why it's not working. That's, that's really the biggest mistake. But the biggest tactical error by far is letting a relationship progress unintentionally. So basically, I think you've, you've had these authors on your show, the authors from D, the University of Denver who talk about sliding into relationships. Right. Stanley. Making, yeah. Yeah. They, they talk about not making conscious decisions. You know, the, the woman or will start uh, sharing an underwear drawer. Maybe she's got her tampons under your sink. And the next thing you know, you're moving in just out of convenience. And then you're getting a dog and you're getting a lease. And, and pretty soon these guys end up essentially married. And they're like that the proverbial frog that's in the, the boiling water. The frog doesn't know that it's getting cooked to death. And these guys don't know that they're essentially getting married to death by making these little decisions along the way out of inconvenience. And by the way, there, there was some other research out of Australia where the researchers asked couples who were cohabitating, how did they end up living together? And a huge majority of them said, it just happened. As if this thing, you know, this thing just befell them moving in with somebody. This is the most momentous decision, far-reaching decision of your life, and it just happened. That's, that's not really the way to go about it. Yeah, and going back to the, the research from the University of Denver and Stanley, I thought it was interesting, the thing that he mentioned, when people do that sliding into relationship, it actually makes ending the relationship much more difficult than if, say, if you were very intentional and say, okay, now we are, we're dating, now we are getting married, et cetera. We're, it's, there's a much cleaner break if you need to do that. So it made me think of that story you, you started off with, the guy who just sort of kind of slid into this relationship, didn't even get married, didn't really have any definition for it. And as you see, yeah, it was really messy for him to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the research on moving in, you know, I, I don't take any moral stance on on living together. I think it can be a useful thing. But the thing, the, the variable that really matters is intentionality, because there's been some research that shows that if you move in with the intention of a longer plan, and this is just one step in your plan to build a life together, then it doesn't have any bad outcomes on, on um, the marriage. But it's the unintentional sliding into the relationship that has terrible outcomes. And yes, it is very difficult to extricate yourself as that, as Dave's story showed us. So you talk about there's a script that most men usually follow when choosing a mate. Um, how does, what is that script and how does that script lead to trouble? 
Well, there's a script that humans follow and men and women do it a little bit differently, but it's basically the same thing. And we all know what it is. There's, there's nothing particularly surprising about this, but there has been some research out of evolutionary psychology that confirms it, that men tend to size up women based on appearance first and then goodness of fit second. And women in general, they tend to size up men based on provisioning ability first and then goodness of fit second. And this leads to horrible relationships. You know, when, when you're picking basically the most, the person who fits best out of the pool of women who are most attractive, you're not getting the best fit for you. And so what I suggest in the book is a better way to go about it is to find the most attractive person within the pool of people who are a good fit for you. And I'm not suggesting that men should date women who are physically unattracted to them because that's a recipe for disaster too. But we can make just a, a slight little change to this recipe and put goodness of fit before attractiveness. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've had people on who's like specializing in Jane Austen. And like Jane Austen, the 17th century little, uh, she's a you know spinster basically, didn't, what did never married. Her whole point of some of her books was like, you marry for fit first and then provisioning later. A lot of the characters in her books, they were like going for the guy who had the status, the prestige, the money, and they end up miserable. And she was arguing, her heroines are always the, the ladies who found the guy that was really great, but also could provide for them. That was this afterthought. I, you know, I know nothing about Jane Austen, so I'm gonna have to check her out now, but I'm glad to know that this isn't a new idea. So, okay, let's talk about fit. Okay, so, all right, so we're gonna start off with looking for a partner who fits us well. And then from that pool, we're going to, you know, choose someone we're physically attracted to because that's important. So how do you, how do you figure that out? What is fit? How, how do you know if a woman is a, is a good match for you? Well, let me give you a little, little structure of the book. I spend the first, the last two thirds of the book are about what kind of woman is, is, um, has what it takes to succeed in a relationship and how to avoid just the basic tactical errors and, and don't screw your life up by bringing the wrong person in. But the first third of the book is really about you, the, the male reader of this book and getting a few things, um, making sure that you have a few things in order before you even start considering settling down with a woman. And, and one of those is values and values being the things that drive you in life. Like remember I was talking about Dave, one of his biggest values in life was freedom and autonomy. And so he built that into his life. And unfortunately he, he lost that temporarily, but when you have a good sense of why you're on the planet, what your purpose is, what gets you up in the morning, where your values lie, you, you have to have those things in order in order to uh, get the right woman into your life. Because otherwise, how do you know she's a fit and how does she know that she's a fit for you? Uh, and so how do you figure that out? It's just sort of self-finale. You just ask yourself certain questions. What do you do? Um, it, there's a lot of – well, first of all, there, there's a couple of lists that I give in the book specific – two different lists of 10 specific values domains. And one is sort of philosophical. It comes from the social psychologist named Shalom Schwartz. And he looks at things like uh, self-direction and achievement and security and freedom and gives you a way to think about, all right, what are the big philosophical things that matter to me in life? And then there's another list that comes out of just clinical behavioral work that a lady named Joanne Dahl, well, not she's, she's the one who sort of encapsulated everything, but it comes out of this behavioral clinical work where behaviors look at, all right, what are you actually doing in the world? Uh, what are you doing with your cure? What are you doing with your leisure activities, your religion, your community involvement? What do you see yourself doing that really matters to you? And, and there are some questions like uh, that you can ask yourself, like, all right, if no one was watching and if money wasn't an issue, what would you be doing with your life? 
so I give these two lists and and some ways to think about how to pin down where you sit. And then I add a couple more to them, sex and money, because those are the things that their uh, couples really uh, can can get after each other about. And so getting really clear, what are your values about money? What does it represent to you? Like for Dave in the beginning of the story or the beginning of this talk, money for him represented freedom. So that's what it represents for some people, but for other people, it represents security. For other people, it represents the ability to have leisure time, security. And then sex, you know, what what is your appetite and what is her appetite and what do you like and what does she like and what kinks do you have and what kinks does she have? Because these things can really, um, they, they really can become a bear in relationships. And so getting these things sorted out in your life really helps you know who's going to fit in. So besides money and sex, what are some of the other values that cause the most conflict in a couple when they're not lined up? It's, it's, I've noticed in my practice, it tends to be the big philosophical stuff. Like I, I told the story in the book about Chris and Sophie, and I'll give you a, a real quick pricey of that, that Chris was this really motivated, very motivated political science student in college. And Sophia was, she was kind of fine in her way. So it wasn't, didn't really have any passions in college. Chris, on the other hand, was very passionate about what he was doing. He wanted to be a, a political fundraiser, a politician, whatever he's doing, he was going in that direction. And so she saw him and she saw this guy who was really directed and she just fell in love with that. And he saw her and she saw this girl who was, who would go along for the ride basically and support him. And so they were doing his political stuff and they were going to all those fundraisers. And even in college, he was, a he was working at a think tank as an intern and she was always with him at the functions and so forth. And they got married. Down the road a little ways, she started to come into her own and her values, and she started to figure out that she was getting really tired, number one, of talking about all the politics all the time. It was interesting up to a point, but it's starting to wear on her. And also, she was discovering that she was more of a homebody. She had a, a nice, stable job, and she just kind of wanted to stay home at night and watch some movies and have a circle of friends around her. He wanted to be out at fundraisers and events and doing stuff. And so they, they eventually, because they hadn't really pinned this down – their, their differences in values at the beginning. And because they didn't really have a language for talking about their values, they just started getting angry at each other. And they eventually got really resentful and had this terrible, ugly divorce that cost them a lot of money. And it, it was just a case of not being clear on what they wanted because they're a wonderful fit otherwise. But these big philosophical issues really tripped them up. Okay. Let's say you spend the time figuring out what your values are. How do you figure out what a woman's values are because you know when you first do that initial date or the first few dates that stuff doesn't typically come up i mean you usually try to keep it light you don't go right to like so tell me about your life's philosophy when you're at you know chili's uh, you know you need an awesome blossom on your first date so how do you go about that and how, how long does it usually take before you get a, a really good idea of what her values are and if they line up with yours would, would you really eat an awesome blossom on the first day? That sounds a little dangerous I, to me. I, that's the breath my, and... my first day with my wife. <laughs> I took her to Chili's and uh, we had an awesome blossom. But that was, you know, Girl, back in college All right, well, when Chili's was it hit. It works out there. Right, it worked out. Good. Yeah. How do you get to know? Yeah, you're right. You don't jump into this stuff. It's just, it's weird and creepy to start asking those really intense questions right off the bat. So I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to uh, one of the most important tactical strategies you can have with a woman is to date her for a good long time, number one. And then number two, don't hide who you are because we tend to, as guys, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit chameleon-like with women where we want to be what they want us to be. And we can't do that. You know, we've got to show them right off the bat through our behavior, not our words, like what's important to us at work and how are we live in our lives. You know, they're watching us. Women are very good at watching how men move through the world. So if we're honest about how we're moving through the world, then we're not selling them a bill of goods. But 
getting back to that idea of dating somebody for a nice long time, um, can I talk about the honeymoon period for a minute? Yeah, no, go ahead. Right. All right. The, the honeymoon period, we all have this, this vernacular idea of, about what it is. And we all know what it is. It's that period where you just infatuate with each other and things are going great and nothing the other person does bothers you. They're just perfect and all their little quirks are adorable and so forth. And this is a tough thing to pin down biologically, but there have been some studies where people have looked at serotonin signatures in the blood to determine, to try to get a sense, you can't really determine this, but to try to get a sense of how our neurobiology deviates from its baseline when we're in this infatuated stage. And it turns out that there is a, there are some chemical changes, and again, it's really hard to know exactly what they mean, but there are some chemical changes that deviate from baseline for about somewhere between 9 and 18 months. And during that 9 and 18 months, we're basically operating under the influence. We are not seeing the world the way we normally see it, and we are not presenting ourselves to, to the other person the way we normally are. And so during that honeymoon period is a terrible god-awful time to start making decisions about long-term relationship stuff like getting a dog together and you know we want to move in that's what your brain wants to do like you want to you want to get the relationship moving quickly but you got to rein that in and to some degree i i think it's as maybe a little sexist to say but i think it's up to us men more than women to to really slow that down because women traditionally are are wanting to push it along and it's up to us to say no no we got we got to get past this honeymoon period and so getting past that honeymoon period you know that you're past it when the other person starts to look a little more human to you like all those little quirks that used to be adorable now they're starting to get a little bit annoying not hopefully not to the point where you can't live with them but you you're starting to notice that they're not on a pedestal the way they were during that first 9 to 18 months and the other parts of your life that receded start to come back into importance. So when you're in the honeymoon phase and you two are really focused on each other, you start to you exclude things. You exclude friends and family a little bit, some of your activities a little bit. And when that stuff starts to come back online and you're seeing the other person as human, that's a pretty good indication that your neurochemistry is starting to return to baseline and you're getting beyond that honeymoon phase. And that's when the real trial begins. That's when you get to see, all right, for a year or so, do I still love this person? Is this still the person that I want to be with now that I'm not drunk with neurochemicals? So basically, you're you're arguing bringing back the uh, the idea of courtship. Exactly. Yeah. This is it's this very old term. It sounds ancient. It sounds Victorian. But it, man, it can save your life. Right. Well, and so let's say you get through this honeymoon phase and you you discover that not all your values are absolutely lined up. Is that a is that a deal breaker or no no, no. okay. No, absolutely not. Conflicting values are a deal breaker. So if, if you are, yeah, I don't know, if you're, if you're a, if one partner, I'm not going to say the man or the woman, but if one partner is a 40-year-old computer programmer with a master's in, in computer science and a minor's in philosophy is dating somebody who's 22 and is a high school dropout and working the drive through window at Wendy's, those two people might have a huge attraction to each other, but they might not fit philosophically they might have conflicting values conflicting goals conflicting everything that's a bad situation and and some i guess some ex more realistic examples of that would be somebody who is passionately republican dating somebody who is passionately democrat that's really a tough thing to navigate it can be done certainly people have done it but you know there's there's probably somebody out there who's a better fit so conflicting values are bad 
But differing values, they can be great. You can actually bring different things to each other. If one person is yeah, kind of into politics and the other person is kind of into religion or family or whatever, then you can add to each other and your different values become an additive thing rather than a subtractive thing. So continue on this thread about uh, personal values and their importance in a relationship. I mean, you, you talk about in the book that one of the most common complaints you hear from women when they come to counseling with their husbands is that, or their boyfriends is that, that the man changed. What do women mean by he changed? What they mean is a couple of things. Usually it, it's this surface level issue where he stopped being affectionate. He stopped pursuing her. He stopped doing a little romantic things that he did when they were dating. And so my, my thought on that is just don't stop doing that stuff. That stuff is fun. Keep doing it. Keep telling your wife that she, she looks great and keep buying her things and keep taking her places and, and treat her nicely. That's, that's a really easy fix. The harder fix is when we aren't presenting ourselves accurately to them throughout the courtship and then they marry us or they, you know, we, we take it to the next level, whatever that means for you. And then suddenly they start to see who we really are. Like maybe we weren't as motivated as, as we portrayed ourselves during the courtship and we've, we've sold them a bill of goods. And you can imagine how disruptive this would be if you commit yourself to somebody. You know, this is a big decision for women too. And you commit your life to somebody, you start making all these changes and all these plans. And then you wake up next to them one day and they're a different person than you thought they were. Very disruptive. So you talk about the books, like women are attracted to men who know what they want in life and, and go after it. Yeah, there's this movement. I, I don't know if you've noticed it, Brett, but on college campuses, for example, right now, it started out in one Ivy League school, but it is sort of trickling down to other schools where you can take classes to cure yourself of your toxic masculinity. And so um, this is not what healthy well-adjusted women want. They, they don't want heterosexual women. They don't want to date a girl. They want to date men. And this is, again, this is common sense. We all know this, but if, as if we need confirmation of the common sense, there is some, there are some studies that are starting to come out that say, you know, actually surprisingly to us academics, women tend to like masculine qualities. They like strength and protectiveness and, and those things that this other group of malcontents is calling toxic. So what do you tell to a guy who, all right, when he was dating his wife, you know, had that motivation, had that drive, but now he's lost it several years in relation and the wife's not happy. How do you, how do you get that mojo back where you, you reconnect with your values and you start acting on them? That's an interesting question. I, I do meet a lot of guys in my practice who a few years into marriage, they, they get kind of depressed. And I think it's a little bit different for every guy, but I, I really, if there's a common theme in any of it, in all of it, I think it's that men need to be very careful after they've committed to a woman that they maintain their connection to other men, that they maintain their connection to their purpose in the world, and that they find that balance between all the competing interests. So so if you've got a, a woman in your life who's very important to you, she's going to want your time. But then you've, if you're a man who's doing something in the world, you've got this team over here on the other side that that needs your time and your commitment. So you have these competing interests. And I think men who lose that balance, you know, that involves saying no a lot, it involves sometimes saying no to her, sometimes saying no to your team. But men who lose that balance and that ability to uh, keep everybody happy, but also make sure everybody understands that you've got other commitments, uh, that's a huge contributor to men sort of getting lost in marriages. Right. And you, you talk about in the book that, you know, that advice you hear a lot of men spout off, like happy wife, happy life. That's actually probably bad advice. 
Uh, it drives me nuts. That's just the worst <laughs> relationship advice. What guys mean by that is that in order to keep your wife happy and essentially to keep her from chewing on your ass, you need to just do what she says and don't argue with her and don't don't complain and just follow along. And that's terrible advice. The, the advice is basically shut up and give her her way so that she doesn't punish you. And I can't imagine any scenario where a woman would, where women would say that to each other, just shut up and do what your husband tells you so that he doesn't punish you because women are smart enough to say, Hey, that's an abusive relationship, girlfriend. You need to get out of that. But we, we give this advice to each other and we're trying to help each other. I think we're trying just to, you know, if I said that to you, Brad, I'd, I'd be trying to, I guess, um, protect you from having an angry wife. But the problem with that is that obviously we, the men are going to get resentful of this woman who we have allowed to control us. And they're going to get resentful of us for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're not giving them who we really are if we're just bowing to them all the time. But um, also, women typically don't like men who've allowed themselves to be emasculated. Right. So, all right, don't do that. So, yeah, stand up for yourself. Never give up on your values. I mean, you don't have to be a jerk about it. People oftentimes, when they, there's a lot of guys I know who they were kind of, you know, they grew up a stereotypical nice guy. And they think to counter that, yeah. they have to become an a hole. Basically, yeah. It's like you don't have to do that to be assertive. No, and that's that's really not what women are looking for. I I did some surveys on this a few years ago, and I was I was really interested in this nice guy problem because there's this false dichotomy, and I think men create this. I don't think women have created this, where we believe that we have to be this nice guy who just lays down and gets run over, or we have to be this big jerk who throws our weight around. And turns out that women really aren't interested in that. What they're looking for is assertiveness and a guy who can defend his values. And you can be the nicest guy in the world and be assertive. You don't have to be a jerk about it. That's really what most women are looking for. All right. So the first thing we got to do, let's recap what we've talked about, is figure out what you value in life. And that's going to do two things. First of all, it's going to make you more attractive to women because women like a guy who knows what they want in life and goes after it. Absolutely. And And then second, it allows you to filter for women who line up with your values and have the same values as you. So find yeah. a good fit. Yeah. All right. So let, let's talk about, so we, we've got our values. We've talked about courtship and dating to figure out if a woman's values line up with ours. What are some like the other attributes we look for in the women? You talk about this thing, what you call the bright triad. It's sort of a play on this, the dark triad. I'm sure people have heard of. So what is the bright triad and, and how can you determine if a woman has traits from the, this triad? The bright triad is just something that that I came up with. You know, I was looking at this. Um, the dark triad is people that you don't want in your life. They're manipulative and they're Machiavellian and they're, they'll use you and so forth. But that you know, knowing what you don't want is only so useful. So what do you want? And I started looking through the literature and looking through my own clinical files and just finding you know, looking for qualities that women possess who are successful in relationships. And it. I boiled it down to clarity, stability, and maturity. So that first one, clarity, has to do with communication. We we assume that women are the best communicators on the planet. And that's, that's not necessarily true. It's true in some ways. It's also true in some ways that men are better communicators in other areas. And then stability, just uh, how does she handle her mental health? It doesn't mean that she can't have any mental health problems like depression or substance abuse or so forth, but she has to be willing to address them. That, that's just a deal breaker. If she has some mental 
problems or emotional problems that she's not dealing with, the relationship simply can't progress. And then emotional maturity, just how does she handle life and how, and what are her coping skills like? Because you're going to come across some bad times and you want somebody in your corner who knows how to handle herself emotionally. Well, so let's talk about those emotional skills. You talk about there's five, you think, utterly non-negotiable emotional skills that any potential mate should have. What are those? Yeah. And again, I went through the literature, went through my own files and, and boiled them down to boil down a whole lot of qualities to these five. And we, we can... I'll, I'll list them out and then we can do whatever you want with them. Insight, uh, which is the ability to know what makes her tick and what makes the relationship, what makes you tick. Intellectual nuance, which really boils down to um, her ability to see the world and people as a mixed bag. So she could, if she's upset with you, she has the ability to say, I love you and I'm angry with you rather than I hate you or I love you. Third one is resilience, which is what it sounds like, the ability to handle hard times, get through life. Internalization, I think, is probably the single most important ability that anybody has in a relationship. And that's the ability to take responsibility for the relationships that you're creating and the outcomes of your behavior. And then number five is self-maintenance, just the ability to get your sleep, your diet, your exercise so that you're bringing your best self to the relationship. All right. So I, I would imagine that if a woman isn't displaying any of these things, like it should be a red flag. Should like, huge red flag. Yeah. Huge red flag. Any, any one of these. So going back to this idea of stability, uh, you brought up emotional and mental disorders and you have a section in your book about that. What do you, are there some common mental and social disorders that can cause relationship problems, whether, whether the man has it or a woman has it? Yeah. And I listed four in the books. There are just your garden variety mental health problems like anxiety and depression. Chances of divorce double when somebody has untreated depression. Now, I'm not saying depression. I'm saying untreated depression. So it's important that she's willing to, number one, acknowledge that that problem exists. And then number two, gets treat it and take responsibility for, for handling it. Then there's substance abuse and compulsive behaviors. And over the last few decades, men traditionally have far outpaced women on substance abuse. In fact, our substance abuse kind of mirrors their depression. So for every woman who's depressed, there's a man who's abusing substances. And it could be that we're depressed and we're just covering it up with substance. But anyway, women are catching up in the substance abuse department, unfortunately, uh, particularly prescription drugs and, and pot and compulsive behaviors like eating disorders and so forth. Number three, there's unresolved emotional injury. So the, the, Injuries that she experienced in her development that she never came to term with and she is either protecting herself from in, in all of her adult relationships or she's more likely recreating and seeking out in her adult relationships. And even if you're not the guy who's abusive or who gets angry at her or whatever, I don't know that a woman can make you abusive, but she will – in, women and men will tend to recreate in their partners. They'll, they'll turn their partner into the person that mistreated them if unless they learn how to come to terms with those unresolved emotional injuries. And then finally, the big one is personality disorders. And these are particularly troubling because there are some personality disorders, and, and let me define the term. This is basically a personality style that has serious trouble getting along with other people, maintaining relationships that are free of chaos and conflict. So the personality disorders, I go through several of them, but the main ones that are really dangerous are ones like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. And the reason they're so dangerous is that 
these folks, men or women, they, they tend to be very um, charismatic in the beginning and they can make you feel like you're just walking on clouds and, and they're wonderful. But then there comes a point someday where everything flips and now you're the bad guy and suddenly everything is chaotic and, and it's just terrible. So it's really easy to get drawn into these folks. What do you do if you know, you're dating someone and you find out, okay, they've got this, this issue or maybe you're married and the issue pops up you know, yeah. later on in marriage, do you just, and it's causing a lot of strain. What What's the next step for a man there? Well, it, it's really important to know what line not to cross with, with that sort of thing. So if, you know, if your wife develops some kind of, if she develops depression or, or substance abuse or something like that, your job as a man is to really advocate for her, be in her corner, help her get treatment, but not to be a white knight about it. Like you, you can't, rescue. You can't treat somebody's depression in your living room anymore that you could fix their broken arm in your garage. It's, it's really your job to help them get the help they need. But then it's their job. That's where it stops. That's where your job stops. It's, it's their job to participate in treatment and take responsibility and and participate in the help. You can't make them do that. So yeah, if, they're, if they're not doing that, you know, at, for a continued amount of time, that'd be something where you like, you might have to consider ending the relationship. Yeah. And this is where I Give my, I'll give my personal opinion, which may or may not correlate with the data. I don't know. But my personal opinion is that if you've done everything reasonable to try to get somebody help, then it gets to a point where you got to give them a choice. And I don't like ultimatums. I don't like saying to somebody, do this or else. I don't like it when women necessarily say, hey, marry me or I'm leaving, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I don't like saying to somebody, get help or I'm leaving, but you can give them a choice and say, Hey, look, I have to make a decision. I'm the one that needs to make a decision here. So, um, if you're not in treatment by such and such a date, then I'm going to know that you've chosen your substance or your depression or whatever it is over me. And I'm going to have to leave and it'll break my heart, but I'll, I'll know where you stand. And so you're giving them a choice. It's a little softer. It's basically an ultimatum, but it's a much softer ultimatum and it's putting power in their hands rather than taking power away from them. Right. And I think it's going to fall back to the guys too who have these problems, you know, understand that you you have a role, like don't, don't use your depression or whatever as an excuse for the bad relationship. Uh, you can yeah. still take steps on your own to to solve that or to manage it. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I want to go back. I, I should have done this. So let's say you're in a relationship, you're married, and you discover that the values you have conflict with your wife's values. What do you do in that situation? And it's causing strain. Yeah, the, this this comes up and people's values change over time too. You know, People mature and they change and they, they develop new philosophies. But all right, so uh, what what do you do when somebody when you discover that your values are diverging, or you discover that you married somebody with very different values? And the problem that a lot of people run into is that they already have kids and they already have this family. They always have, or they already have some reason for trying to stay together and maintain their relationship. If there's nothing there and your values are absolutely conflicting, and there's no kids or anything to worry about, then yeah, maybe maybe you go your separate ways and you try to remain friends or at least respectful to each other. But if you have some reason for trying to stay together. I think number one, as the man, take the lead and, and put it out there that look, we're we have developed some different values. We probably care about the same things. Like we 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 care about our kids, but maybe we care about them differently. And so having that conversation and just acknowledging that it's out there. But then as far as actual techniques that you can use, one is just to embrace the other side of the coin. And what I mean by that is there were probably some qualities that you found attractive to her in the beginning that were maybe irresistible to you in the beginning, but now it has, uh, it has flipped and those values have become, or, or those 
qualities have become annoying. And there was actually a study on this. I can't remember the name of it, but it had a clever name like um, from attractive to a repulsive or something like that. And this woman looked at, this researcher looked at uh, qualities that people found attractive initially, like a freewheeling person became flighty. And so that, that flipped for the person or a person who was funny became flaky or a person who was philosophical became irresponsible. So one thing you can do if you find that your values are diverging is to remember that, hey, this thing that I don't like about this person is actually another side of that that I really do like and stay in touch with that. Another thing you can do just in, in terms of communication is agree to disagree on some stuff and agree that some things are just going to be you choose not to talk about them because you're you're just not lined up on it. But there's all this other stuff that you are lined up on it. You you can talk about and talk about things up to the point of diminishing returns. When it gets to the point where you're rehashing old stuff, maybe you both decide, all right, this this one's off limit. Here's a question: I, I can imagine there's a you see this a lot with couples you counsel is that the the couples fight about something really stupid, but yeah. there's an underlying bigger issue. How do you figure out what that underlying big issue is when when all the focus is on this like really dumb, trivial thing? Yeah, these rabbit holes that people get drawn into. I, I had a couple that came in and they were wanting to know what to do with their son because their son, uh, their son. I don't work with kids, but they they wanted some insight on this. Their son had started to have all kinds of problems in school. His grades were going up and down. He was having a little trouble getting along with folks. And as I talked to them, it, it came out that they both had been sort of veering in and out of alcoholism for years. So what they came in with was this rabbit hole discussion of their son that they had been bickering over. The son wasn't the issue. The, the alcohol was the issue. And it's tough to spot those things sometimes. But I think when you find yourself having the same arguments and conversations over and over again, and you're not getting anywhere. I forget who said it, but it some clinician said, if you haven't solved something by the third or fourth time, you're not going to solve it on the 30th time. So step back and try to figure out exactly what's going on. There's a really thing to, to look for is just patterns and arguments and things that aren't getting solved and then exploring what might be behind that. Awesome. Well, Sean, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, the book is in all the usual places and you can find me at docsmith.co. And I just posted a uh, a blog post on how to talk to girlfriends about prenuptial agreements. And so if you're a guy who doesn't need that right now, maybe you know somebody who does. All right. Well, Sean Smith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today was Dr. Sean Smith. He's the author of the book, The Tactical Guide to Women. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find more information about his work at docsmith.co. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash red flags, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. Also check out our archives. We've got over 300 episodes there and it's all evergreen, still relevant. Go to artofmanliness.com slash podcast to check that out. And if you enjoy the podcast, I've got something out of it. I appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please share the podcast with your friends with someone you think you would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. 
If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.